Understanding finance and how finance brokers work is your gateway to wealth in property. Hi, I'm Jared Krause and I am the co-host of the Property Powers Australia podcast. And in this episode, myself, Sam and Andy are discussing why you should use a mortgage broker over going directly to your bank for getting finance for your property investment. We also talk about how to choose the right mortgage broker and experience you should be looking for in a mortgage broker and questions you should be asking them when going to use them as a mortgage broker or deciding to use them as a mortgage broker or not. We also talk about uh, the common questions that all beginners have when using a finance broker that Andy most commonly gets and why they're valuable for you to know before applying for finance. We also talk about how mortgage brokers get paid and why they don't charge you for the amazing service they do. And we do go into a lot of what they do in the work they do and and how valuable a mortgage broker actually is. And then we also touch on the documentation that you need as an employee and as a self-employed person when applying for finance to buy a property as well. We also mention uh, in the podcast episodes, since we're talking a lot about finance, that you should go away and get our mini course on how to maximize your borrowing capacity. That's at propertypowers.au forward slash resources. That's propertypals.au forward slash resources. Let's dive into the episode. Welcome to Property Pals, the podcast where we share everything around how to build a property portfolio from researching areas, financing, structuring, buying, selling, and reinvesting to live a life of financial independence. As a disclaimer, any information shared by myself, Jared, Sam, and the Property Pals team is strictly general and should not be taken as constituting professional advice. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, and taxation advice from a qualified professional. All right, let's get stuck in mortgage broking. So Andy, thanks for coming back on. No, thanks for having me again. It's good. It's going to be good. Happy Um, to be here. Awesome. We realized that last call there was so many things that we 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 could have we could have chatted longer. So we will do more of these guys because Andy's like, damn, there's there's so much in it. Like there's so much in the structuring, right, Andy? Yeah, yeah. What we chatted about was only one small segment of yeah. of everything. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about. So we will get back to structuring in other episodes, but I um, want to talk about mortgage broking. Why would somebody, I know there's maybe a lot of obvious reasons, um, probably because you get access to more lenders, one being super obvious, but why would somebody use a mortgage broker over just going straight to their bank? Like what, is, what are the advantages there? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. So, so there's a lot of advantages. Um, one, of the, one of the things that a lot of people, well, the good thing to start with is that, you know, you kind of don't know what you don't know. Mm. Um, you know, when you're starting out, getting your first property or looking into investment properties, um, you know, there's still a lot of stuff that you got to, a lot of research you got to do for yourself and and things that you got to work out for yourself and get a good understanding of. Um, when you go with a broker, you know, if if the broker's doing a good job, you know, they hold your hand through this whole process. So so they're good at um, education. So you know, explaining everything that you're doing while you're doing it. Um, you know, every step of the way. The risks, the benefits, um, everything. Obviously, yeah, you get the big selection of lenders. So a broker who's been doing a lot of deals, over time, you, you get a un- good understanding of which lenders suit which type of borrowers and you're able to sort of match them up together. 
So some banks like, you know, self-employed, some prefer, you know, companies trust, other things. Um, some won't even touch some of those structures at all. So you want to sort of make sure that you're actually putting putting the bank with the right person or the right person with the right bank. Um, and then in, in doing that, you know, you've got the best chance of, you know, getting the loan finalized, but also just putting putting the client in the best position to be able to keep growing their portfolio. Yeah, awesome. I think you really pigeonhole yourself into one type of financing with when going with your bank, right? And then you don't also get to choose like what is the best rate <laughs> when you Yeah, that's it. You yeah. So there are there have been times when I've heard of, you know, people going direct to their bank and getting some sort of benefit from it. Um, you know, certain scenarios that, that can be beneficial, but generally speaking, I think a lot a lot more loans are getting written with brokers now. Um, I think the last lot of numbers came through that I think maybe there was a small decrease, but generally speaking, the trend is going up. More and more loans are getting written through brokers um, because there are, you know, there's a, such a large variety um, of lending products out there now, um, you know, from traditional banks and, you know, the majors and then into non-banking and, and private funding as well. So mm. there's a lot out there. Was it, I think uh, uh, the MFAA, it was 70 to 80% is done through a broker brokers now yeah i think it i think it peaked at 70 i could be wrong and then i think maybe it dropped back down to 68 or something like that but there's still yeah still going back up so yeah i was a lot yeah well you've got a broader canvas to to look into and um, assess your options and you know banks have just got a you know a few products which they'll obviously push but that you know it's kind of like investing in property right why look in your backyard when you've got the whole of australia to look into Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I think other countries like the um, United Kingdom, for example, I think they've got a much higher rate as well. I think closer to maybe closer to 90%, I could be wrong, of their loans are written through brokers. So, yeah, it's I love, a I love that you mentioned the education piece. Uh, I know that people that we have introduced to you to go and get funding and uh, finance have been really big on that. What why is the education piece so important? I mean, I know I know that I love learning and I want to I want to learn how to get the best deal terms, finance and why is it such for somebody to say they're buying their first property? Why is the education piece from a broker so damn valuable? Yeah, I, the first thing is it's just such a big transaction. Um, you know, you, you're talking about a lot of money. Usually, it's a, the biggest financial trend, like purchase that people make. Um, so, you know, you just for your own your own level of comfort, I feel like people just want it. You'd want to have an understanding of of what you're doing and why, all the ins and outs of it. Um, you know, terminology, things like that, because you just want a good understanding. Um, and if you know, if the client understands exactly what they're doing and why, they're a lot more comfortable with it. You know, they're a lot more comfortable with you, um, and it just creates a better a better experience for everyone. So. Because I think that another thing is the finance industries can be very convoluted. You know, there's a lot of terms, acronyms, all sorts of stuff. I, I sometimes think a lot of it's done on purpose just to just to keep people <laughs> confused and, and feeling overwhelmed. Um, but yeah, you know, and different banks all have different terms for the same thing. Um, you know, it's big in the finance sector. You know, one thing can be called kind of four different names. So I think, um, you know, helping people with the education side makes them feel a lot more comfortable with it and then they want to continue on too. So, and, and when things do go, just say something does go south, um, you know, they've got an understanding of why and, and you can kind of work through a lot of those scenarios too um, rather than someone sort of just saying, well, you're supposed to do this and this happened and 
yeah. What about the stress relief, like the like relieving of the stress for somebody versus that's like I'm going to try and get finance. They go and find a property. They really want to buy the property, and all the weight is on them to get everything prepared, perfect for the bank to be able to get approved, versus having that kind of on the on the finance broker. That's a that's huge, right, Sam? Like when somebody's <clears throat> somebody's looking at buying a property, like to not have to worry about the finance and make sure that that's that weight is on say Andy's shoulders is pretty good. <laughs> oh, you'd have a similar experience with the the bank, but uh, I'd say the the, the stress uh, when you mention that is, you know, do you have the right product? Is the best? Is it, is this the best product fit for you and what goals you're trying to achieve? And you know, if you're going just through the bank, they've only got a limited number of products, so it may not actually be in your best interest to go with any one of those products compared to what else is out there. So that's uh, the stress is just consistently come back into your um, your, your journey because you know, you're in that one product, you've got that one relationship, they're pushing that one agenda the whole time whereas having the broker, it's a more of a broad-based approach and they're not tied to any one product. They're there for your best interest at heart and that's where I see the um, – that's why there's been such a big growth curve in the mortgage broking industry, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, completely. And and that's the thing they've legislated as well is the, the best interest duty for brokers essentially being, you know, you've got to prove that you're putting them in a better position or, you, you know, the best position that, that you can for their situation. Um, you know, if you're going direct to a bank, the bank can't really prove that they are, you know, making the best decision for you because they've only got a couple of products there and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the things that help you determine, Andy, what is the right sort of loan structure for somebody? Like like you said, it's different for like entrepreneurs versus employees and, and like what are some of the things that might be valid? Is, it, is that just always up to the mortgage broker or is, you know, is it for – is it for the the person who's going to the mortgage broker to know like at least a little bit to share with the mortgage broker to help them find those um, those loan types? Yeah, look, it's it's always good for for the borrower to have a little bit of an understanding of of what's going on. It's definitely not necessary, and that's part of part of um, the education side of things. But when we're sort of deciding on those structures and and what's best, it all comes down to just understanding their situation. Um, a lot of the brokers that are kind of just short-term thinking or just more transactional based, they're not going to ask a lot of questions, you know, and they're going to kind of steer you towards an outcome that may already be predetermined for them. Um, generally, what happens when, I, when we chat with someone is we're just asking a lot of questions to find out what's going on in their life, what they're planning on doing and what's happening. And it's just, you know, question after question. Um, and it's sort of a lot of those what if questions, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Um, and you're kind of just throwing those scenarios around and, and you may be forming like the broker may be forming in their head a bit of a strategy or an idea of what they're doing. But the good ones aren't really guiding anyone towards any any strategy until you've kind of got a good idea of exactly what's going on, um, where they're at and what they're trying to achieve. And then once you do have all of those, um, depending on that person's situation, you kind of know from experience which lenders are going to be best suited for them, um, who has the policy that's going to best fit what they're trying to do and, and help them to actually, you know, get the money that they want um, and then help them get future properties as well. You know, you're never really tied to one bank. 
you know, you can obviously have multiple properties with all different banks and, and that's always a good thing to do as well. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with the banks who really want your structure and your loan, it just makes the whole process so much easier. You're not butting your head against the wall trying to get a loan approved with a lender that you've just selected for whatever reason. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. We're, you've just opened up a can of worms that I, that I think we should definitely dive into and that <laughs> is what I heard you say is can help us determine what a good broker, uh, finance broker would look like compared to one that's maybe not so good in, yep. ter- in the fact that somebody, a good broker is going to ask a lot of questions versus a, a a broker that doesn't have your best interest at heart or is lazy is going to just go, yep, there's these few deals that or um, loans that work for us and we're just going to put you through those and, and that's that's that. So that's one thing. That's You're going to say something there, Sam? Yeah, I just want to jump in. Um, there's, there's laziness in, in obviously all industries, but there's also a lack of experience. Um, so yeah. that's, you know, people do have the best intentions um so there are probably some brokers out there which uh, you know in a few years that'd be fantastic just for now they just haven't had enough runs on the board to to even know the questions to ask right yeah fully so mm. how do we so how do we do that andy how like how do we know how do we determine uh, what uh like ha- that, that a finance broker has enough runs on the board and that they're you know they're asking the right questions and they've got our you know they know what they're doing versus somebody that is sort of new to the game yeah so, so this is a part that can be a little tricky, especially for someone going for their first property. If you don't know enough yourself, then someone can easily just say whatever answers to you or whatever with confidence, um, and then you're just going to believe them. So, so that's why it's always handy to have a few things lined up beforehand, a few questions, you know, maybe just have, you know, a Google a few things and just try to get an understanding of basic terms and things like offsets, redraw, stuff like that. So you can ask a broker some of these questions and sort of see how they respond. Um, you know, if, if you go to a if you go to a broker and they're not asking you a lot of questions, they're kind of just quick quick to jump to something or a certain um, outcome, then that's usually you know a bit of a red flag. Um, there's also you know s- some brokers who just when you're chatting with them, they just don't have enough knowledge there. You know, it's just quick answers, short answers. They're not guiding you through the process. They're not explaining things. Maybe they don't want to take the time to explain some of these things to you or you know, they give you a quick answer, you don't understand still, but then, you know, maybe they don't carry on. Um, you know, there's a few things that you can kind of just gauge from those conversations that, that might lead you that way. Checking on experience, like Sam was saying as well, is, is a big thing because um, with so many different lenders and so many different policies, you know, if, if they don't have a lot of experience there, then, then you know, that could be a, a bit of a red flag too. I know that, Sam, you've shared with me before how to check on experience with brokers in you know, both for resi and for commercial. Do you want to share how people can check how how much experience or how much um, success that a mortgage broker's had in the space? Well, for me, I, I like to see at least a few years' experience, uh, ideally four years' experience, um, just in the broking space. Uh, to go deeper into that, I mean, obviously you want the best of everyone uh, or the, the best the best, right? And some of that experience, it, it comes from investing in property themselves as brokers or you know, having that mindset of a, you know, your financial mindset. Uh, and that comes from either, you know, financial planning, accounting or, you know, experience. Um, and I'm not just plugging mm-hmm. you again, Andy, but 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Plug away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I can't stress it enough. It's just yeah, just having that mindset of okay, you want to achieve this short-term goal, but what it, what's your actual you know, medium and long-term plans with your life to structure it accordingly? Because you know, there are examples out there where people they they over leverage themselves to a point where they go to all these different lenders, but they actually find themselves getting trapped because only one lender will borrow will lend to them. And then they can't refinance out. And if they can't afford those repayments, then the only thing they can do is sell. Yeah, that's huge, hey, Andy. Because <clears throat> you sort of touched on this last time we chatted, Andy, that mortgage brokers, finance brokers can't legally give financial advice or taxation advice, mm, right? Yeah. And it's that's that seems so scary for everybody listening. They want to build a portfolio of properties they don't just want to buy one residential property you know they want to move into uh, buying larger properties and eventually i'm sure they would love to get higher cash flow properties from commercial right and you you do commercial loans as well as resi how much of that plays a part in somebody building out a property portfolio that can actually help them achieve their 10-year plan yeah, well, it's, it's huge because um, Sam would probably know the stats on this. How many investors actually make it past their first property? Oh, you know, I, I know. It's like, I think it's like it's ninety-five percent don't make it past their first. It's really yeah. um, so, something yeah. like that, right? It's in the nineties. I've I've heard as well. Yeah, so so a lot of that I imagine would come down to you know poor planning, mm. um, you know, getting a and, and structuring and just getting a good understanding of of what those steps are and what everything looks like and and how you need to do it from from step one all the way through, um, you know, and some some people everyone's time poor. So, you know, to go to a meeting with a mortgage broker, then, you know, with an accountant and then maybe with a financial planner, um, you know, that's that's a lot of time taken. The, the financial planning side is a bit of a different one because, you know, unless they're really licensed to give property advice, most of them aren't. So you kind of got to be careful on that side with the financial, with the financial planning um, aspect on things because, you know, you might go see a financial planner, I want to do this and this with property, and maybe they start steering you towards you know, super and other investments and, yeah. and things like that. <laughs> so, you know, there is a lot of planning involved um, to, to get to where you need to go from, from that, um, from step one to, you know, maybe 10 years down the track with your property portfolio built out and, you know, getting a good buyer's agent on your side and, and getting that investment team, um, you know, who can help with all the analysis of cash flow and, and everything like that. It's definitely a big one. Absolutely. That's why we are doing this, right, Sam, is to help people get the best team and build out a, a world-class property team so they have everybody that they need to, they know that they can go to and get good advice. Uh, with that said, talking about the, like, structuring a property portfolio in terms of finance, there's... Like from what I learned from the first finance broker that I went with my first ever property is like if I if I was to buy and correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but if I if I buy my first property with a with a decent bank, it can open me up and help me get lending with other, you know, third party lenders because I've already got one property with a bank that has a good reputation. Is that is that what some finance brokers do or is there a you know, is there a reason for that? Oh, uh, look. Are we throwing somebody <laughs> under the bus here? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, look, look, there can be. Um, 
you know, I think if you're ticking all the boxes with your lender, then that's always going to be a big thing. You know, you're, you're hitting, making sure you're, you're doing all your repayments. You know, you're not doing anything crazy um, and proving to them that you are able to, to pay back your loans, you know, definitely going to be a big thing. The banks now look at a lot of um, behavioral, you know, um, economics and, and stuff like that. They're, you know, analyzing what you're spending money on when you get when you're being assessed and um and that does come into a lot of it so yeah you can, you can be with one bank that may help you with others down the line i would probably say generally that's because they've got part ownership <laughs> somewhere <laughs> somewhere behind the scenes because um australia's banking sector is you know pretty tightly held um yeah. that's an example yeah. st george is owned by westpac and then you've got Aussie yeah Home exactly Home same with Bank SA and yeah there's there's so many different ones that are all just tied together. Hmm. Yeah, so Seems you're right saying right. you're saying that uh, if you get a you know your first, <laughs> first property with Westpac, then you're likely going to be able to get a decent deal through St George for a second. Um, yeah, look, I I wouldn't really be planning my lenders based off of a strategy like that. Yeah. To to be honest, um, I wouldn't be looking. Finance brokers do that though. Um, maybe, but it might just <laughs> maybe it's from a volume based side of things. You know, they're writing a lot of loans with within that group specifically, um, which sometimes you know can be a benefit because they may be able to get you know special rates or be able to push things outside of policy for for someone borrowing money within that group. Um, and then that's where you know experience with the broker comes into play too, just because you may not be getting the best rate with a with a bank doesn't mean you're not getting the best policy for you um because i like to say to some people like interest rate isn't everything when it when it comes to structuring this sort of stuff um and if you're judging your broker solely based off the the interest rate they're getting you and not the value that they're actually providing to you and and the whole strategy and everything um then you know maybe you're just sort of thinking about it a bit the wrong way and and maybe you're going to end up in that 95 percent yeah, you're only looking at one piece of the, the bigger puzzle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, there are there are a lot of, um, you know, there is a lot of undercutting and things like that between brokers as well. Like, I, you know, I kind of see it all the time. I'm, I'm chatting with a client about something. Maybe somehow they got referred to, a, to another broker as well, or maybe I'm the second or third broker that's been chatting to them. Um, and you do kind of hear about them saying, oh, you know, they could, you know, get me a better rate of, you know, five five bips less than what we'd originally offered and in the grand scheme of things that might be like ten dollars a week less but it's with a bank that doesn't have a policy that suits that client in the first place and maybe the broker wasn't actually looking at the whole situation they're just trying to get that loan so or the propensity to pay down the loan faster over the life of it which will save you a lot more than 10 bucks a month yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah it's definitely um you know looking it is something that we need to be mindful of as well is like what, what lenders are going to help us get, get to where we need to go. And if you are doing a lot of loans with a certain lender, maybe you can push things outside of policy. Um, you know, they push that up. So if you're doing a normal assessment and you need, maybe there's something that the bank just doesn't like, but if, if you know, you're doing plenty of loans with them and the bank trusts you as a broker, then you can actually write a good submission for that client and be like, look, I know it doesn't meet your policy here, but for these reasons, um, you know, I think the risk could be mitigated um, and then maybe you can get that loan across the line that another broker couldn't have with that bank. Mm. What, are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, when you're with one bank and you're, uh, can you still go to a different lender who's not tied with that bank in any way um, for like, like a strategic purposes so they don't see your cash flow um, doing the loans? Like, or 
I'm just anticipating with all this the technology now, these banks, they know your spending habits with the ones that you're in because they've always got access to your accounts. Do you find you can get greater borrowing capacities by going to a bank that's not with a client's currently banking through? Um, well, yeah, the potential is definitely there to, to have um, a better borrowing capacity with someone outside of who you're already banking with. Um, you know, they could be down to, to their policy. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, you, don't, you only need to show them a lot of the time what the bank's actually asking for. You know, there's, there's times where you don't need to give, you just give them the information that's asked for. You don't need to go too crazy overboard, give them, you know, everything. Um, it's, you know, I've seen it in the past where a lot of banks, and this comes down to the self-employed side of things, a lot of banks are doing one-year financials now. So, you know, instead of, instead of requiring two years of, um, you know, financials and tax returns for a business, they only need one. Um, I've seen it in the past where someone sent financials through for one year, but it had a comparative year for the previous year on there. So maybe the bank was only asking for the 2020, like the 2022 financial year. Um, and then you accidentally gave them the 21s and the 22s. And then the loan get, got rejected. I've, I've seen that happening before because they just gave them more information than what they're actually asking for. And it, you know, would came you, back to buy them. Um, obviously, Jared's pretty heavily in the business side. What would be a couple of key tips for you know, business owners that are looking to get a, a, a mortgage? Like, it's a pain in the ass. Don't get me wrong with. <laughs> getting all your documents together and all that, but yeah. Any yeah. Tips? Yeah. Well, this is when I first started broking, I naively just started in the self-employed space because that's just where my clients were all being from <laughs> like coming from accounting and going straight into it and not realizing that it's just the, <laughs> the hardest, the hardest, the, the hardest loans to write is um, all the self-employed stuff. And then you, oh, never... you love jumping in the deep end, Andy. <laughs> oh, whenever I was getting like a PAYG couple, I was like, yeah, yes, I need <laughs> like six docs and we're done. <laughs> no, no follow-up, nothing. It's like, yeah, it was great. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I see a lot of people getting caught out with is the two-year ABN rule. Um, bank, all banks want to see that the, the ABN has at least been active for two years. Um, and then, you know, most of them will want two years of financials and, and tax returns. So what a lot of banks do is they take your first year, second year, and then just do the average of whatever the income was for those two years. So a lot of people get caught up, they get kind of stuck because they're not planning ahead enough and not realizing that this is an actual thing. Maybe, you know, they've been working in an industry for a long time and their salary is quite high and then they decided to go start their own business um, and then, you know, without actually realizing that they've just can't borrow for the next couple of years. Mm. Um, so a big thing is planning ahead on that side and making sure you, you know that. Um, you know, you, if you can get the one year in isolation, that, that's obviously a good thing and, and can guide you towards that, that lender who might help you there. Um, but in the self-employed space, you want to make sure, you know, just like in your personal stuff, you want to limit your liabilities. You don't want to have a lot of debts. Um, the banks don't like ATO debt too. So a lot of them are doing, you know, consolidation loans and things like that. So they'll pay off the ATO debts and then you've just got the debt with the bank. Um, but I've seen quite a lot where the ATO won't even proceed until a certain debt has actually been completely paid off. So so that could be something that stops someone as well. Yeah, I used to do that with my uh, ATO bill. I used, to, I used my, I was like, oh, I can either pay it out now or you could pay it on a payment plan. Oh, yeah. Payment plans are great. <laughs> Why would you not do a payment plan? But then um, <laughs> yeah. after like two or three years, they're like, now we're going to charge you interest. I'm like, damn, okay. I guess it's good that I just paid out for, outright for um, borrowing capacity, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and another thing I see people getting caught out with um, in the self-employed space is obviously no one wants to pay tax. So some people, you know, you're taking advantage of, um, you know, instant asset write-offs and things like that to, to help before the end of financial year to help lower your, your, pay, your tax payable. Um, and they're not actually realizing, okay, by doing this, you're actually hindering your serviceability. So it's kind of sometimes it's a bit of a trade-off there where it's like, you know, do you want to be able to borrow more or do you want to pay less tax? And, you know, to prove that you've got that income there for servicing, you've got to pay the tax for that income. So a lot of people try to, you know, they think think they're being smart and, and getting around things and not paying their <laughs> or reducing their tax, sorry, <laughs> to the ATO. Um, and then when they go to borrow, you know, their income doesn't look that great or as great as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I so, so, so it's very important. <laughs> yeah. It's very. It sounds like it's even more important for a business owner to be pretty strict with who they use as a you know finance broker that can help them around these sorts of things, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, ninety nine percent of the banks are happy to have PAYG employees, um, but not a lot of them really like the self employed space. Before we continue today's pod, I want to ask you a few questions. What is your property investment goal? What type of properties do you want to own? How many? What size valuation property portfolio do you want to own? And how much net income do you want to be earning? Essentially, what's your magic number in passive income that you want to be earning? And do you know how to get there? And if you do, do you know how to get there in the least time possible with the least amount of risk? Sam and I have been helping people invest in property and build property portfolios for years. People who are now replacing their income through property, and we want to help you do the same. Right now, for a limited time, we are offering free property coaching to our listeners. We won't be able to do this forever, of course, so head to propertypals.au forward slash coaching. That's propertypals.au forward slash coaching to see how we can help you achieve your investment property goals. Link will be in the description too. So would there be a certain set of questions that people could ask a finance broker on? Like, I'm just thinking about somebody that's listening to this, like they, they want to find a really good finance broker. What, you know, and they're, they're either PAYG or maybe they are self-employed. Like, are there more questions they should be asking that finance broker to determine out of the three that they're speaking to who's who's going to be a, a better pick for them? Yeah, um, I think... Definitely, yeah, ask, asking as many questions as you can about as many different things as you can. You know, trying to find out how the broker can actually help you, just asking things, you know, how can I, you know, increase servicing? You know, what can you see that there may be issues for me? Um, you know, finding out ways that maybe, you know, they can offer a bit of, of advice on how to clean up your credit score and things like that. Um, you know, there's there's so many questions that you can ask them about your situation and scenario and, and loan products and, and everything. You know, lenders that they that they quite often use, you know, you can ask questions around that. Um, you know, most brokers are all under aggregators here. So everyone has access to, you know, majority of all the same banks anyway. So you could ask every broker, you know, how many lenders do you have available? And they're all going to give you roughly the same answer anyway. So it's kind of getting a good understanding, asking them, you know, who they're writing a lot of loans with and, and things like that. Um, and this is where it comes back to, if you don't know a lot of these things yourself, then anyone can just say anything to you. But You've got to have a lot of trust, I think. Um, you know, when, you, when you're doing this, you want to have a broker who you really trust and, and understand and, and they understand your situation. Um, and in, it's so competitive as well these days that, you know, everyone should be offering a high level of service. So if you're going somewhere, um, you know, you're chatting to a broker 
and you feel like you're not getting you know a, a good enough service from them maybe they're ignoring you not answering your questions right um you know any sort of reason there's nothing stopping you going to another broker you know there's no there's no contracts there's nothing that kind of ties you to that broker you know while you're going through that process of finding which one to go with but you just want to make sure that you are getting a good service and you are comfortable with them and they are providing you you know a lot of information i even go you know what like i've heard a couple of scenarios where people are you know because brokers get paid by the banks to do the work then people shop it around and they've got two brokers doing the same role without them knowing you know, what are the complications mm. around them submitting two different loan applications to two different brokers? Yeah, well, well, that's something that um, <clears throat> when you go to submit there, you know, each bank's going to see that there's another loan pending or there's a pre-approval already granted. Um, obviously, doing that's going to hurt your credit score because you're making more credit inquiries. Um, so the more inquiries that you make and they go against your score, you know, the lower your score is going to be. Um, but then a lot of banks are going to start asking questions around what's this other pre-approval for? Why is it sitting there? You know, why didn't you carry on with it and what's going on? Um, the broker should be able to see that as well if they go to rerun your credit score right before they maybe go to submit some documents to the bank. Um, and then, yeah, you're kind of just going to put yourself in a bad position, really, because you're kind of just being sneaky behind their back. And yeah, it's kind of not. So, so for example, like I can see why it would wreck your credit score because when the bank sees that there's two sort of loans trying to be get put through um it's going to open you up to them being able to see that and thinking hang on a second are you you're not going to get this from this one from this one bank that's you know then they're trying it again so that's that can hurt your credit score right but for somebody like say say it was me as an example and you're a finance broker andy and sam you're a finance broker and uh if i Say Andy, yeah, I want to go. You know, I want to get this. I want to get. Yeah, want to go for that amount of pre-approval. And I say the same with Sam. And you both submit, and then say Sam submits for pre-approval prior to what you you do, Andy. Can you see that Sam has submitted for pre-approval based on um, my credit score or something, whatever's going on in the back end? Just for me knowing as a you know a investor. Um, yeah, so you can see you can see everything that's come up on their credit score. What might happen is you, you know they probably could sneak through if if a broker's pulled the credit score at the start of when they're getting the file together um, to look for any things that maybe you know any skeletons that are hidden in the closet, um, and then you know maybe not doing it again before they go to actually lodge. So if you are you know if you do have sort of um, you know good housekeeping there and you are rerunning that report, you'll see that there'll be a you know a significant change on their score. And you'll actually see the amount that they've requested and what bank it's with and the date that it was done as well. You can't, obviously, you can't see anything around who's actually done that. Like, you can't see broker details or anything like that. But you can see that they've made that request. Yeah. And then you would just know that. And that stays there for for years as well. Okay. That's why it's important to, I mean, you got to be mindful of people's time. Do your due diligence and research on your broker up front and then pick one and go with that one. Um, And... Yeah, you just run the risks of you know, if you if you're tarnishing your credit score, then it's going to affect your borrowing capacity. And as Andy said, it lasts years as well. So just want to keep home. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the first things you want to clean up or make sure is that you you know your credit scores are right because there are a lot of banks who who they say, look, if someone's got a score below this number, don't even submit a loan with us. So you know, essentially with them, your borrowing capacity is zero. 
So it's always something that you want to make sure it's all cleaned up. And, and a lot of these companies, they let you contact them and dispute things that are on there. If you think maybe there's a mistake or they've been too harsh about stuff, um, you know, they are able to amend things on your credit report too. I'm going to plug the uh, How to Maximize Your Borrowing Capacity mini course we've got on our website, propertypals.au forward slash resources. Check it all out. It's exactly what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Nice. absolutely absolutely i was i was gonna do it if you didn't sam <laughs> <laughs> you're training him well <laughs> sam's, sam's all over it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and that's another thing you know doing courses like that and and getting an understanding of things just makes the process a lot better um you know better for the person borrowing better for the broker better for everyone involved because it's just more of a smooth process um you know when they've got an understanding you know my best clients are always what was that sorry so it's free education too. So mm. Um, mm. yeah, why not? and 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 some of the best, um, you know, my best clients and the best deals that we put across the line, you know, come from the people who already have such, you know, maybe a big wealth of knowledge about it um, and a good understanding of everything, and and it just makes you know a lot of that strategy flow easier. It's easier for them to digest, and and you know, you can talk back and forth, and and you know, bounce ideas off each other, and. Yeah, it's, um, it definitely makes a much better process for everyone. That's why this podcast is so insanely valuable because you people are listening and they're learning, but also what they may not realize is that they're they're getting pre they're getting pre education to say working with you, Andy, and they're getting upskilled and knowledgeable about the questions they should be asking and. Basically, it's like a pre-sales call, right? Like that's what I look about. That's what I look like with uh, all my other podcasts. Is like they people that are, people that listen, they you know you're they're sort of being pre-vetted, and then when they mm. come to you, it's easier for you guys to start your relationship off much faster. There's so many like meta things that happen within this, and yeah, the, the conversations flow better. You know, when you've got someone who's completely green. Um, you can explain a lot to them, but there's still a lot of information for them to take in, you know, in, in that in a one in one meeting, you know, maybe that's half an hour phone call or, or less. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a lot to take in. Um they need to, you know, go away and digest and then come back and, and chat again and, and chat again and you know and go through the whole the whole strategy. So. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Sam, you got some more questions for Andy around uh, I mean Andy's in this mortgage working space, obviously daily, right? Like it's there's a there's always a common occurrence common questions that come through in my line of work and i i don't want to put words in your mouth any but what would be those you know top three sort of common questions that, that people ask you just so we can you know shed as much light as we can on them to get them prepared before um you know, coming and having a chat with either their preferred broker or even <clears> yourself yeah the the biggest one number one question that i reckon i always get is um you know the difference and benefits between an offset account and a redraw facility. Yeah. Tell, yeah. Us, tell us. I don't know if that's what. <laughs> always, always like everyone's, everyone's dedicated to now enough, hopefully, to realise that you know, just getting the cheapest interest rate possible, which is a 30-year loan term, principal and interest, and that's all you pay. Uh, there's a lot of education now that, yeah, people are, are well, what's the difference between redraw and offset? So go for it. Oh, you're asking me, are you? <laughs> I thought you were about to dive into it. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so obviously, okay, so with an offset account, um, you know, for, for every dollar that's in that offset account, um, which can just be treated like a, like a normal bank account, every dollar that's in there um, offsets a dollar that's on your loan. So if you've got a loan of $500,000 and you've got $50,000 in your offset account, instead of paying, paying principal and interest on $500,000, you're now paying principal and interest on $450,000. So your repayments don't change. But the portion of your repayment that goes towards principal and the portion that goes towards interest changes. So that way you're able to pay off more interest. I mean, so pay off more principal quicker. So that's that's a, the first or the main thing about, about offset accounts. There's a lot more to them, obviously. There's a lot of strategies around those as well. Um, with a redraw facility, it can be similar in the sense of it can just be a bank account there that you, you put money into. But what's actually happening is that that money is getting committed you know, to the bank and actually paying off principal from that loan. Um, so, you know, in the sense of you were just putting money in your offset account that was reducing the amount of interest you pay, you know, this one you're kind of putting money towards the principal. So they're, they're kind of different in that sense. Um, there are, you know, a lot of restrictions around the redraw side of things as well. Um, more banks are, are rolling out unlimited redraws. But generally speaking, you know, the drawbacks with, with redraws is that there can be fees for pulling money out or limits on how much you can actually pull out at a time as well. So you lose some of that flexibility. When you've got an offset account, you can just treat that like a savings account. Money can go in, money can go out. You know, you, you've got your um, debit cards linked to it, credit cards, whatever. Um, and you just treat it like a normal bank account. So there's a lot more control and flexibility in that offset. And what's your viewpoint on so what's yeah. your viewpoint on fees? So with, with offsets, you know, a lot of people go, well, I don't want to pay the annual fee to have that. And um, have you done any calculations around? Oh, it's it's easy, like easily, you can easily just prove them, show the benefit of that, sorry, um, by just, you know, there's a lot of calculators and things out there now. Most banks have, you know, calculators on the websites on Money Smart and whatnot. And you can just show them the benefit of putting, you know, even $500 in, you know, every couple of months or maybe $50 a week. And how much that will save you over time just to, you know, pay that 250 or $300 a year to have that account there. You're saving yourself thousands and thousands down the line. So it's, um, you know, one small thing, one, one little inconvenience there to, to save yourself a lot of money. And on investment properties, bank fees are a tax deduction as well. <laughs> Uh, well, you're trying to, he's trying to give tax advice here. You know, it's a question mark. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it depends, mate. It depends, depends on your situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who's a redraw good for and who's a offset good for? Um, I generally use or lean more towards offsets for, for people who are actually, you know, looking to to purchase more properties down the line, you know, get more investment properties and build things up. The main reason being, you know, if you put someone on an interest only loan and they're putting all that, you know, extra money from from having a smaller repayment into the offset account, you're essentially building like that principal on the side anyway. So you're only paying the interest, your repayments are smaller, you know, your offset account's growing and that's, you know, um, helping you pay less interest. Then you've got that money there that can already be the deposit for the next for the next property. So you may not even have to refinance to get money out of that property to then get the second one already. So if something's if so, up in the offset already. Yeah, exactly. You've already got that money there. So if someone's situation has changed over that time and maybe they're not, you know, and this is where it comes back to planning and from step one, 
if you're looking at having kids in a few years, but you also want to get an investment property in a few years as well, you know, maybe your income is going to be damaged. So, you know, if you're trying to refinance one property, buy another property, you know, it might not just stack up. So you've kind of got a bit of flexibility there with not having to worry about touching anything with that initial bank the first time. And you've only got to deal with the, with the bank for the investment property. So, you know, it, give, it does give you a lot of um, flexibility there. Jared, you're having kids soon, right? <laughs> Pretty far away from that. I've got to find a human to do that with. <laughs> oh, we can turn this into a dating podcast. I saw a robot. <laughs> there was robots at the NFL with like human faces. And, <laughs> They looked all right. They looked pretty. They looked pretty hot. <laughs> um, both men, yeah. both the male and the female. But anyway, maybe maybe our species won't have homo sapiens anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so so just to get back on track here, <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> we got Elon Musk over here. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big picture thinker, Andy. <laughs> Going going beyond the lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, digressing terribly. So yeah, so getting back on track. Thank you. Um, and one of the things to be careful with with a redraw is, um, you know, depending on the type of loan that it is, you know, if it's for own occupied property or, or an investment property, if you're pulling money out of your redraw, you're essentially increasing the size of that loan, you know, and you may be increasing that pulling money out of redraw, increasing that loan to then use somewhere else. And it may not be tax deductible, but but you think it is, um, you know. So there there can be drawbacks of of doing redraws. I usually think when people are just trying to you know get investment properties and grow more and more and more, um, you know, offset accounts are, are way better for that and to help you facilitate that. I've always thought about the question of so I've got two different properties, two different offset accounts. One's in a trust, one's in a um, you know personal. And the personal one isn't is making as much cash flow as the other one uh, in the trust. <clears throat> so I put the I put my most of my money for the the deposits um, and for what I'm going to buy next into the trust offset account versus the personal account because uh, or the the property that's bought under the pers- personal name with the personal offset linked to it because that can be good because it can decrease my uh, income, taxable income, personal taxable income. Mm-hmm. Are there any other strategies where people may have multiple uh, investment properties that they have linked offset accounts to and don't know which and where to put the, the their savings <clears throat> towards, yeah. the, you know, which offset account? Yeah, so, so this is a good question to have um, for an accountant as well is, you know, sitting down and saying, all right, cool, these are the properties I've got. These are how they're structured. These are the offset accounts. This is my income, you know, and this is the money that I've got, you know, moving each one to, you know, if I move money to this one or that one or, or this one, depending on, you know, how much income is coming from from each of those, you know, how can I best position that money to, to like you're saying, in, help increase your servicing and, and mm. things like that. So it is, um, you've kind of hit the nail on the head of what you would actually do in that scenario of, um, you know, moving that into the right account. So try and look for the property that you want to be more um, positive cash flow. And put yeah, because if, if you're trying to minimize, you know, minimize your tax there and you're putting everything into, to say you've got a home and your first invest, like an, an investment property, you know, if you're putting all of your extra income and everything into the offset account against your property, 
um, your investment property, sorry, you know, you're going to be lowering, you know, the amount of tax you're paying. So, so obviously it's going to have a big effect down the line of, of what you look like on the bottom line. So, Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So that was just one question. Like that was just the, and we went down so many different rabbit holes, which is great. <clears throat> that was just like the one question <laughs> people have for uh, a finance broker when they first come. Is there another one that's pretty common that they have when they first first start chatting to you? <clears throat> yeah, a lot of people um, are confused around fees as well. Like for, in terms of like, hey, do oh, you- Yeah, no, yeah, fees for the broker, sorry. Should um, yeah, specify yeah. that. Yeah, I have a lot of people who, you know, after you have that first conversation with them, maybe at the end they're like, okay, cool. So so how much is this, you know, going to cost me or, or what's your bill or what's your rate or, or something like that? Um, you know, and it's good to know that, you know, that the way brokers are paid is um, they get paid commission based off of the loans that they're writing. So <clears throat> most banks all have a pretty similar um, commission percentage that they pay out. There are slight differences. Um, but you know, depending on the size of the loan, that can be pretty marginal, maybe $500 difference. It's never going to be enough for someone to outrightly put you with a bad, um, lender just to try, you know, get a small amount of money difference. They're generally pretty close to each other. Um, and they also pay a trail commission for the life of the loan. So while that loan was written by you and is with that bank, every month they'll, they'll pay a small, um, percentage to that broker. So that should help encourage, you know, ongoing service, um, the broker can keep, you know, offering a good service to that client and, and continue going on without having to rewrite loans because they're still, you know, getting paid for that loan. So yeah. there's there's no real upfront cost to the client for that. And and those interest rates don't, that doesn't affect, you know, just because you're writing it through a broker compared to going direct, doesn't actually affect um, the interest rate. It's going to be, you know, the same interest rate there. I just think you're I, crazy not to go with a broker, right? Like it's... There's, I, yeah, the downside is so is very 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 small <laughs> or limited, or if there's any at all. Like, but, yeah, there is a lot of work. The reason why they pay you that fee is because it's all the paperwork that you're doing in the back end, so they don't have to go and do it themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there there is a lot of work. Like you know, you can spend a lot of time on a file or work, working with a client, and you may not receive income for that for months, even sometimes years down the track. Um, <clears throat> because you only get paid on the settlement once that loan settles. That's when they distribute the the income out to um out to brokers. So you know there are a lot of times where a broker can work with someone, write them a loan. Um, you know they do have clawbacks still um, in the industry. Some some banks have started changing their clawback um, of commission policy. So you know if if you write a loan and then that loan gets closed out or or rewritten somewhere else within the first twelve months, then one hundred percent of that commission needs to get paid back to the bank. Um, and then you know the following twelve months after that, so between twelve and twenty four months, then it's fifty percent of the actual um, commission gets paid back. So a lot of um, a lot of banks have started winding that down a little bit. So maybe after eighteen months, there's no clawback, or maybe there's a smaller percentage after twelve months, things like that. Um, because, you know, a lot of banks were offering cashback incentives, um, which has kind of calmed down now, but especially during COVID and they had the big refinance wars, they were offering, you know, up to five grand, sometimes six grand um, cashback to people who were refinancing with them. So that's a huge incentive for someone, you know, to just go refinance with this bank, six months later, refinance with that bank, six months later, refinance with that bank. And, you know, 18 months, they might have made, you know, 10 or 15 grand. Just from refinancing, yeah. but then there's also refinancing costs as well, which eat away at that. So, 
you know, yeah, the full thing. Yeah, that, that that's yeah, exactly. Like that's that comes back to bite bite you as well. So, where do you see the uh, like? Was in in the mortgage broking side of things? Obviously, you know, what's the prediction for cash rate? Are you on? Well, what's the vibe around that on your end? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I if I knew the answer, mate, then uh, I'd probably be living up in a gold castle somewhere. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I reckon they're done. Throwing it out there. Uh, personally, uh, personally, I think they're done. Like you know, I, I was in line with everyone else. Thinking I was thinking maybe there's going to be a couple of rate rises this year, and I wasn't expecting them to be so quick as they were. Like I wasn't expecting that. You know, February, March, bang, bang, like one after the other. Um, mm. so quickly but from the from the numbers that are coming through you know inflation keeps coming in below expectations you know which is a good thing property prices have started going back up and we still have a pretty low unemployment rate um oh, mate. Ips, Ips, which has been going up the whole time you're just not in the right spot so. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just, just not looking in the right places the funny thing is sam got me a property in Ipswich, and then also the one i bought uh earlier was in WA and then Sam sent me a link today of uh, his publication of WA blowing up as well. So, uh, oh. Sam, that's why he's on the pod. We got the, uh, we got the Oracle of the Gold Coast here. Uh, I, was in, I was in WA today. So, you know, I'm not going to time and date Sam this one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. My mum well, was looks- happy to call her up. She was stoked. I'm in WA newspaper. Look at that. Yeah. So I like you know obviously I don't want anyone to make any decisions based on what we're talking about now, you know, without getting Absolutely. proper advice, but and their personal you know, situation. Yeah, the the way I see it at the moment is you've people who are trying to fix now, they've kind of missed that boat of when to fix because rates yeah. have risen, we know we've potentially re- reached peak um inflation and interest rates I feel like there's more of a chance of them going down than there is of them going up. So, you know, if someone wanted to fix a loan now, because I still do get people who want to fix their loans, maybe they just want to know exactly what their rates, like what their repayments are going to be because everyone saw it change so much, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm always just saying to people, look, if you really have to fix, you know, and this may be my recommendation is, you know, go variable, but they really want to fix and, you know, that's that's their decision at the end of the day. You know, I'm always trying to say just do one you know, maybe two years max, like, because when you start going over that, you know, you, there's a lot there you, that you can potentially miss, you know, and you always have the ability to to split between fixed and variable as well. So you can kind of hedge your bets either way. Here's, um, I'm sorry, I didn't eject, but there's rhetoric out there at the moment where they're talking about interest rate cuts coming through in 2024. Um, mm. Like, for me, I, I see that as, you know, really poor um, management from the Reserve Bank of Australia to raise so fast to then go and cut twelve months later. Um, people are some some people <clears throat> yeah. are banking on that. Oh, there's going to be cuts next year, and I'm sort of sitting back saying, well, don't make your investment decisions or your property personal decisions based on that because it doesn't doesn't make logical sense to me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I thought it was ridiculous when I was seeing articles coming out there of people saying they want to sue the RBA because they went and bought an investment property because the RBA, like Philip Lowe said that there wasn't going to be any interest rate rises for the next 12 months. And it's like, well, you're taking That's financial crazy. advice. Like, yeah, if, if you weren't able to, to purchase that property and, and hold it and you didn't do enough of a risk analysis and things like that, you know, that, that comes back on you. It's, you can't really hold the RBA to that. Obviously, they are under a lot of scrutiny, and now he's gone, and we've got a new, you know, new um, head of the RBA coming in. Um, 
so yeah, but it'll be interesting to see where, where things go there. But yeah, I, I do agree with you, like the way that it is being broadcast like that as well, and you know, went up so quick and so aggressively, and um, you know, maybe that needed to happen, but it was just bad timing, especially with coming out of COVID. You know, it was just that slingshot of everyone being cooped up and then being released, and you know, right before like European summer as well. So there was just a lot, a lot going on there too. So. Yeah, I'd also say I'd love to see the lawsuit. Good luck suing the Reserve Bank of Australia. I don't think I don't know what lawyer would pick that one up. <clears throat> yeah, it would only come back to hurt Australians anyway, right? <laughs> if you sued the RBA, they just print more money to cover the losses. <laughs> you mentioned um, you mentioned variable rates, and you know maybe at this is dependent on where the person is with their property portfolio. Um, maybe it's a pretty smart time to be on variable. Is there any a time? <clears throat> any reason that a property investor building a property portfolio when they're buying a property portfolio to not go for a five-year interest only uh variable loan structure um so was that five-year fixed or five-year variable like why when when would you not do a five-year variable interest only loan oh sorry yeah an investment property <clears throat> um yeah so so if you got to if you reach the point where you you you're happy with what you've got and you want to just start paying down those debts, mm-hmm. um, you know that that can be a reason to to just have principal yeah. and interest on that loan. Yeah, so you can actually start you know paying that off and and reducing that debt. Um, you know to try get more cash flow coming through the door. Maybe you know pay it down to a certain level and and recapitalize a loan and maybe refix your your repayments to to make them a bit lower. Um, you know that that would be a pretty good reason I think to to go down that path but when you're kind of building it up and and for every for me anyway the biggest thing is just cash flow cash flow is a thing that's going to stop you from growing your portfolio so you want to be able to like you want to be all over and and managing it um and you also need to remember this is a big thing too when banks look at investment income so all, all the rental income that comes through um a lot of them shade it down to 80 percent meaning you know if you've got 10 grand coming in for the bank, you've only got eight grand, so you're kind of losing some money there as well. So that eight grand, only eight grand, will go to helping you with your borrowing capacity, not the yeah, toward grand. toward servicing. Yep. Yeah. So so cash flow is a big thing, and that's that's what's going to stop a lot of people. You know, obviously there's you need the deposit, but you also need the cash flow to be able to pay for these things and and service for, to make servicing stack up. I know this this isn't a never ending conversation for for me and, and Andy, uh, but, <laughs> uh, and also Jared, obviously, but. Another key thing I just want to try and um, hit home on is doing uh, getting loans with with friends or with relationships mm-hmm. that um, you know, may not be cemented as long term. Such as like, obviously marriage is kind of a bit more cemented, but um, I hope so. <laughs> what are the what are the complications around that? Can you share a bit of light? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, the thing is, when you're doing it, just say you're doing that with friends you've got to make sure everyone's on the same page. You know, everyone's in, could be, everyone travels through life at different paces, um, you know, and if everyone's not at the same place, you know, it could potentially cause issues down the line. So, you know, someone, you know, you might have, have someone like Jared and, and, you know, he's doing his own thing, building his portfolio and he's got clear goals in his head. He might, you know, you might partner up with someone who maybe is just focused on growing their family. And, you know, you've got to look at what happens if, you know, you've got to chip in more money towards this property or something like that and, and people start to, you know, disagree with things. 
if everyone's not on the same page with what the property's for and and what you're going to do in different scenarios, you know, it can quite easily turn sour. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, sometimes I never like to get into business with someone who you, you don't mind losing that friendship because sometimes you never know what, what what's going to happen. Um, you know, if if you're getting a loan, if you're getting a big loan with someone, <laughs> um, you know, you want to sell, they don't want to sell, maybe they can't buy you out. Something like that, especially when you're talking about a lot of money, is well, they want to simpler. get on a loan, and then yeah, and that's the other thing. You know, if you're looking at someone, it may hurt their servicing. They want to do other things with their portfolio. Maybe they can't buy a home because of this property that you guys hold together. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios and and reasons that that could all blow up and and go south. So you, you do want to make sure you've got clear goals. You know exactly what you're trying to do over the next few years. They know what they're trying to do over the next few years. You know, you write down. You know, if this happens and we need to put in an extra five thousand dollars, how's that going to be paid? Who's going to pay that? And and things like that, because yeah, it can it can very easily go go the wrong way. But in you know the environment that we're in now, that's going to become more and more common, I think, because people need to increase their you know their, their servicing and the borrowing capacity, and property prices are going up so much, and you know with rates being where they are, um, it's you know becoming less and less affordable. So well, there's even um, incentives now for. Um uh, parents to to go in with their their kids or to put money towards um, a kid's home to increase their borrowing capacity and serviceability. So they, because of the affordability issue in a lot of major CBDs and even anywhere in Australia from um, the growth we've seen over the last few years, they just mm. can't get in. So now they're bringing these incentives, which is going to further inflate property prices. But um, it, it's also fraught with danger. So just yeah, thought I'd. Hit home on that. Yeah, one hundred percent. And we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of that as well. I see a lot of um, a lot of parents trying to help out kids or their kids. Sorry, when I say kids, they may be thirty years old or more. <laughs> um, trying to help their kids, you know, get into into the property market and get on the ladder. Um, you know, by going guarantor on some of these loans because the amount of time that it take you to save up, you know, to go from ninety percent LVR to an eighty percent LVR, you know, you that could be years. Um, especially to buy, you know, quality property. You know, if you want to buy a home in a place that you, an area that you actually want to live, that might be a lot of money. Or if you want to rent vest or whatever, whatever they're trying to do, um, you know, those few years out of the market could cost a lot because prices are going to keep going up while they're trying to get that extra ten percent. So I'm quite often, you know, working through strategies with people now of of how to actually use their family members as guarantors um, and limit the risk that's associated with it as well. Love it. Any any other questions, Sam, that you have for Andy around making sure you're with the right mortgage broker? <laughs> Got plenty uh, of questions. <laughs> uh, well, I think we hit on a few, and I think it's 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 also the the personal relationship you're actually having, you know, with that human, and, and you want to do it. Also, understand what your broker's goals are for the next number of years. You know, you 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 want to build that trust and have that strong relationship. Four, five, ten years, like, and understanding where they are in their journey. There's some people that you know, are really great brokers, but because they're so, um, I mean, they might be in the latter stage of their career. You know what I mean? So, understanding them as a human, it's relationships as well. But you know, skill set and experience is key. But then, you know, going further into it to see, you know, this relationship you want to develop with someone long term is really key because you you get closer to them and then they become you know, like a, a friend and they really do have your best interest at heart and they, they trust you to know that you're going to come back to them every single time. And um, Yeah, that'd probably be my last little points. 
Love it. I love it. Yeah. When when you feel like your finance broker has your best interest at heart, not for the single singular transaction, but they want to do the right thing for you at the very start so they can continue to do so for a long term. That feeling of support is probably what people should be looking for when they're looking for a good finance broker. I, I agree with you, Sam. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's there's yeah. a number of them out there. Obviously, it's handy having Andy. That's why I think your punchline should be, mate. Yeah, yeah guys, <laughs> you guys, you guys listening in, uh, if you guys want to get in touch with Andy, let us know. Um, we'll just do it. Email us at hello at propertypals.au. We'll do an email intro to Andy and um, we can get you set up. Yeah, well, quite, quite often we just do a quick, quick 15, 20-minute chat with someone, find out what's going on, and, and then, yeah, we, we kind of start moving from there. But, no, thanks for having me again, guys. Perfect. That's right. Thanks so much. Binary FinTech Group. Google it, check it out, but hit us up with an email and um, we'll do an intro as well. See you on the next yeah. one. Ciao for now. Bye.